there. So look for one of these cards. Just kind of pass them up and down the aisle. Got some of those? All right. So what's coming to you is your memory verse for next week. We're going to be teaching throughout the summer on the book of James. James, the brother of Jesus, had some things to say that were very significant. It's, uh, it's certainly at one season the leading apostle in the church of Jerusalem. And he wrote a book that is, was not a letter to a specific church, but it was something that was written to the body of Christ. And it comes across somewhat as Proverbs, as wisdom. And so we're going to focus on that wisdom this summer, and we want to enjoy it, and we want to encourage you to spend some time in Scripture memory, just to, to look at this passage, read through it. I, have, uh, I don't have a focused listening of it as I'm driving, but I've been playing it in my car and probably listened to the book about 20 times already just trying to soak into it. And so, uh, and I don't just want to merely be a listener of the Word, though, you know? I want to do it, do what it says. And that's uh, from a number of different angles. That's what we're going to be doing and focusing on the book of James this summer. I want to encourage you also, some key principles for our worship together. Come early. Be loud and stay late. Our worship times are precious, aren't they? So come early. Come a little bit before 1030. Come, come early and connect with one another. There's conversations that we can, can hardly stop as we start worship because uh, you love connecting with one another. So come early and, and pour out your heart. That's what's happening today. Lord, we express our hearts to you in a way that that we want to be deep and full. And stay late. Help us. If you want to come earlier, even, you can help us put this set up or, and tear down and connect with one another after the service. We're going to be having picnics over the course of the summer. We're going to be doing different things. We're looking for a time to build relationship with the Lord and with each other. So uh, Brian Marcioni is going to be leading us right now. Let's Come on up here, brother. I want to pray for you. So have you appreciated his teaching out of the book of Leviticus? Amen. Thank you, Father, for this gracious man who have given a sharp mind and a, and a clear thought process and, and a heart for you. So come anoint him, Holy Spirit, and anoint all of us with the ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning. I'm super excited to close out this four-part series that we've been doing in Leviticus. It's been a little broken up because of the way scheduling worked out, but I'm really excited to to finish us off today, and doubly so because I'm going to share with you today probably one of the least controversial verses in the entire Bible— It's the most widely accepted, one of the best-known verses of the Bible uh, by those who call themselves Christians and and even by those who don't, something that everyone can agree upon. But as we'll see as we get into it, uh, for as much as it may be agreed upon, 
It's also one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. It's the hardest to put into practice. Uh, there's a quote that came out in uh, the early 1900s that's often attributed to Mark Twain, but he didn't, he didn't probably say it. That is, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand which give me heartache and upset me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. And this verse today that we're going to look at, this group, this text, is going to have that flavor to it. But let me just recap really quickly where we've been and then push us into the message today. Because when I came here on Mother's Day and preached the first message of this series, we did an overview of the book of Leviticus. And we saw how God called a community to his presence. God called a community to his presence, a group of recently and miraculously freed slaves, the Israelites, was called from slavery and death and to a community that lives in the presence of God. And I noted three dynamics to this call that's explored in Leviticus, and we've looked at these. Three things that God has called the Israelites to as he speaks to them at Mount Sinai. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how God called these people to be free from sin. They're to be free from sin. Our text answered the question, how can a sinful people dwell with a holy and righteous God? And the answer was given through the sacrificial system in Leviticus. And we learned that God judged their sin without judging them. Animals would die and be cast out of God's presence instead of them. And in the same way today, Jesus died and suffered the rejection from God that we deserve instead of us. And when Pastor Sean Richmond was here a few weeks ago, he talked about how God has called these people to holiness. Holiness is a distinctness. It's a set-apartness, being other, being different. As God's people, they're not to be like everybody else around them. They're to be holy because their God is holy. And this is their response to the salvation that is already theirs. They've already been freed. So to being God's people, this is their response to them, to God. And in the same way today, our response to our salvation is a holy life. And finally, the third aspect that we're going to dive into today is how God has called these people to be a community. God calls a community to his presence. And in this case, a very large group of people are called to live with one another in the presence of God. So how are they supposed to do that? How are they supposed to live among one another? How do they act? What are the rules? And our text today gives us some important insight into God's heart for community and how we live among one another. So please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. And it's a long chapter, so I'm just going to read a handful of verses. We're going to read Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, then 18, and then 33 and 34. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. But listen carefully with me to what God's Word says in Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So before we go any deeper, let me just take a minute to set up the context of this a little bit. Now, Leviticus 19 might have the heading in your Bibles that says various laws, which is, which is fitting. If you read the whole chapter through, it almost reads like a, like a list of what often seem to be unrelated laws or rules. In the first half of the chapter, the Ten Commandments are essentially repeated. And there are also some laws about worship, about farming, about eating. But overwhelmingly in this chapter, it deals with how people treat each other and relate to each other. It's about community. And the command, love your neighbor as yourself, is essentially stated twice, first in verse 18 and then at the end of the chapter. And the command at the end of the chapter expands upon verse 18 and notes that it applies to everybody, not just the Israelites. In other words, love everybody, everybody, even the foreigners among you. Foreigners and native-born are to be treated the same, the text says. And it's hard for me to stand up here right now and overstate how unbelievably countercultural that was at the time. I mean, it, it's even countercultural today. I mean, I live in Waltham, and to some extent, when I'm mixing with people who are born and bred and raised in Waltham, it's a little different. I'm treated a little bit differently because I didn't grow up in Waltham, right? That still stays with us today a little bit. But back then, radically so, a radically countercultural statement from God. So this command, love your neighbor as yourself, I would argue, has few peers in the Bible in terms of its importance. Let me try and show you how big of a deal this verse is. Jesus himself thinks this command is a big deal. When Jesus is asked how to inherit eternal life by the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, how does he respond? He lists a couple of the Ten Commandments, and he ends with, and love your neighbor as yourself. When an expert in the law asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life in Luke 10, how does he respond? He asks the expert in the law, he says, well, what do you think? And the expert in law says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, what does he say? Matthew 22. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, which Jesus says is like the first one, is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says the same thing in Mark 12. So that should about do it, right? I mean, if Jesus thinks this command's in the top two, I mean, that pretty much says it all, but there's more. What about the Apostle Paul? The expert in the law, who probably knew Jewish law backwards and forwards and, and then again. Paul says that this commandment is the fulfillment of the law. In two of his letters, in Romans 13 and Galatians 5, Paul says that love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, all these other commands point to this one. They're all made complete, they're made perfect, they're summarized 
by love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, calls this commandment the royal law in Scripture in James 2. John Calvin, this great 16th century pastor and theologian, said, What every man's mind ought to be towards his neighbor could not be better expressed in many pages than in this one sentence. So, friends, this commandment is about as big as a deal as you can get, okay? But what does it really mean? What's underneath it? So, as we already noted in the text itself, neighbor is a really broad term. In the text, it's clear it applies to native-born Israelites and to foreigners, In other words, you're to love everybody around you the same way you love yourself. And Jesus famously expands on this command in Luke 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when he does, it's very clear that neighbor means anybody, absolutely anybody, even people you don't know and even races or cultures that would typically despise each other. Your neighbor is everybody with whom you come into contact. And so the text says to love everybody you encounter or might encounter as you love yourself. So that's simple enough, but the tougher part of the text is that word love. What does the text mean by love? Because today the line can be really blurry as to what's meant by the word love. Often it means when you love something, when you say that, it just means you really like it, right? I love Doritos. I love Doritos. If you left me locked up in a room full of Doritos, I'd probably die because I'd just eat myself to death. I I love them, okay? I, I love to play the drums. What am I saying? I'm saying this thing, this activity, whatever it is, is really pleasing to me. I really like it. And it's a consumer's love, right? I consume of something or someone or partake in something in such a way that it pleases us. It pleases me very much. And I'm fond of it because of the way it makes me feel. It pleases me. It's an intensity of fondness for something that pleases us. Love can also denote a feeling that we have, right? It's it's an emotion, We say that we fall in love with somebody. Maybe a friend says something nice to me and I feel loved. And when I when I looked into my wife's eyes, you know, when I when I proposed to her, I felt tremendous love uh, for this woman. And this is an emotional love. And it's extremely powerful, unbelievably powerful, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling that comes and goes like all other feelings, and we have very limited control over it. It's much more in step with our circumstances and situation. We can also use the word love in a deeper way, and this is the way I want us to think about it in the text today. This is the love I mean when I say I I love my wife and my kids, and supremely what we mean when we say the Lord loves us. And here's how I would define it. Love is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. Love is a commitment to give of yourself to others 
for their good. It's a commitment. It does not ebb and flow with our emotions or circumstances. We're devoted to it. We're bound to it, no matter how we might feel. And it's sacrificial. We give of ourselves, even to our own peril, discomfort, or inconvenience. It doesn't matter what we get back. If you ever want to judge the depth of your love for something, just ask yourself how much you would sacrifice for it. The deeper the sacrifice, the deeper the love. And it's other-focused. We give to others. Our benefit is not in view. It's for the good of another. Our self-giving is aimed at what's best for them, for their flourishing, their thriving, their joy, their healing, their survival, happiness, whatever it might be. It's for them. C.S. Lewis said, Love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. That's love. That's love. It's a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. And this is the kind of love that the text is talking about. And if you look at some of the other commands in this chapter, that's what they're about, right? We can look at a few of them. Verse 11, don't lie, don't steal, don't deceive one another. What these prohibitions say positively is be truthful, be honest, respect others' property, Verse 14, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. In other words, watch out for those who are disadvantaged. Don't take advantage of them just because you can. Verse 16, don't slander, don't endanger your neighbor's life. Positively, this means speak well of others or shut up, don't say anything at all. Watch out for people around you so they don't get hurt. Verse 18, don't take revenge or hold a grudge against your neighbor. Verse 32, show respect for the elderly. These are all things you do and things that cost you something that are for another's good. Even more clearly, go back to that parable of the Good Samaritan. And we see how Jesus interprets this. How does Jesus interpret love? So remember the story of the Good Samaritan. A man is, is beaten and robbed and left for dead at the side of the road. And two people walk by and leave him alone. But another man, the Samaritan, walks by and what does he do? The text says that he pities him. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, which means, by the way, that he has to walk now or carry his own stuff. And he takes him to an inn and cares for him. Then he leaves the innkeeper money to look after him until he returns. Note, until he returns. So he's coming back to check on him. What is the Samaritan doing? He's giving of himself. He's giving of his time. He's giving his energy, his money for the good and thriving of this man. And he's committed to it. He's not just throwing some money at him and walking away. He's making sure that he's cared for. He's going to come back and check on him. That is loving your neighbor. And supremely, of course, we see this kind of love and the kind of love that God has for us. Is God committed to giving of himself for the good of others? 
God is the supreme example of this kind of love. He's absolutely committed to giving of himself for the benefit of others. You don't need to look any further than the cross of Christ to see this. God gives us his very self, his own son, to be killed on the cross for our sake. Jesus' death means our thriving, our life, our freedom, our good. Romans 5.8 says it really clear. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater example of a commitment to give of oneself for the good of others than what we see in Jesus on the cross. So what does our command mean? What is the cardinal rule for living in community? The fulfillment of the law. In Leviticus 19, God says that he wants us to commit to giving ourselves for the good of everybody around us, to love neighbors as ourselves. That's the kind of community we've been called to. But I want to ask why. I mean, why the community part? Why has God called us to community? Why did he call the Israelites to community? Why do we all more or less recognize this commandment as non-controversial? It just, it just seems to make sense, right? But, but why? Why has God called us to this? So there are a couple answers to that question. First off, we know that God created us to be a community. Human beings are irreducibly social creatures, right? I don't even need the Bible to tell me that. An anthropologist can tell me that. I don't even need an anthropologist. I just know that, right? It's just obvious, right? It's, 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 obvious. it's a fundamental part of our, of our human condition. We're social creatures, even introverts like me, who would prefer to just spend 90% of my time in a cave reading, I'm a social person, right? What's the first thing in the Bible that's not good? It's man being alone, Genesis 2.18. So Adam is given Eve, and they procreate, and they make families and ultimately communities. What's one of the first things that's fractured when Adam and Eve sin? The first thing that's broken is their relationship with each other. Community is messed up. And then you have Cain and Abel. There's blaming of one another. They feel shame at their nakedness. Community is fractured with sin. We need community, and not just any community, but a harmonious one that's marked by love, a community where all are committed to giving of themselves for the good of others. This is a community that really, really sings when everybody prospers. If you, can you just do that thought experiment for just a minute? What, what this church, let alone this world, would be like if everybody here was sold out, fully committed to giving of themselves for the good of others, for others prospering, no regard for themselves, their comfort, their convenience, their thrive, anything like that, all about others. What would that be like? Would there even like be laws? Would there, would there be need for any rule or, or anything? I mean, think about what it's like when people aren't faithful to this command. What do things look like? Why are human beings created this way? 
What makes us social creatures who are created for community? It's right in the first chapter of Genesis, right? God creates male and female people in his own image. We are created in the image of God. We're made to reflect him, to point to him, to be like him. And our God is a loving community. As Christians, we believe that there is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person is unique and distinct, yet fully God. God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another for all eternity past and will love each other for all eternity future. Even before we were created, they were a community loving one another. And so, of course, if we're created in his image, we too were meant to live in that kind of loving community. Because God's image, God's glory, is best expressed through a loving community. God's glory, his character, his purposes, his love, his goodness, it's best expressed in a loving community. That is why the Israelites are called to a loving community. That is why we are still called to community today. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. How else could we reflect God's character and image if we weren't a loving community as well? He himself is a loving community. Even practically, I think about it. How, how do you reflect God's character unless there's other people around? I mean, how, how do you do that? How can you be loving if there's nobody around you to love? How can you be forgiving when there's no one to forgive? How can you be fair to others if there aren't others to be fair to? How do you respect others when there's nobody res- to respect? You know, in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, at the end of the, the book of Galatians, right, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You can't exhibit any of those characteristics on a deserted island. You can't do that. You need people around you. You need community. God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. And what is at the heart of God's character but love? A commitment to give of himself for the benefit of others. Love requires a community. You can't be loving without anyone to love. Take it one step further and just consider the diversity in community. Right? How could finite human beings express all the rich depth and goodness of our perfect God? I mean, I, I am not the world's most pastoral person. People don't generally run to me with pastoral issues to cry on my shoulder and stuff like that. Hopefully not because I'm a jerk. It's just not like my biggest gift, right? But Mark Buckner, Ron Good, Kendra Aguilar, probably others in this room, spend some time with them. You'll feel pastored. You'll feel loved. I'm not the best worship leader or musician, Becky Zukowskis, Christian Smuts. They are, right? Amen? I actually led worship at my first church. I led worship for a little while. It was a disaster. It was an absolute, like, I can't, I heard a recording of it once. I'm just, like, aghast that it happened. 
that there weren't just manifold complaints of like somebody's torturing animals next door. Stop, stop the madness, right? It's just not, it's not who I am. And that's okay, right? It's okay. On our own, we're just pieces of the puzzle on a floor. But you put us all together and it starts to look a lot more like God. Why? Because God's glory is best expressed in a loving community. Jesus states this crystal clear in John 13. He says to the disciples, A new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will the world know that we are followers of Jesus? By our preaching, by our teaching, our social activism, our worship service, our building, our programs. No, if we love one another the same way Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? He was committed to giving himself for our good. He loved his neighbors as he loved himself. That's how the world knows that we love God, that we're like God if we love each other. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. God called the Israelites to community. He still calls us to community today to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And this creates a titanic problem. Because as much as we might assent to the fact that we ought to love our neighbors, we can't do it. We can't do it because love is hard. It has a personal cost. It can hurt. It's risky. And we're often disinclined to give of ourselves for the good of others. And this is especially true when others are not lovable. It's hard to love when we feel that somebody doesn't deserve it. So how do we do this? I mean, how, how do we respond to this? Well, we do it the same way the Israelites did. By the grace of God and by receiving his love first. Throughout the scriptures, the Israelites are constantly reminded that they are freed slaves that they were set free from a place of oppression and death by no power of their own. It was God's initiative, God's power that rescued them from death. And weeks ago, when I talked about the sacrificial system, I noted how day in and day out, and supremely, once a year during the Day of Atonement, the Israelites see right in front of them the reminder that they don't deserve God's favor. They don't deserve God's presence or his blessings. They should be punished and cast out of God's presence. Instead, an animal takes their place, so they enjoy God's favor, they enjoy his presence, while the animal takes God's punishment. They are constantly reminded of God's grace in their lives. You don't deserve good, but I love you anyway. And our text today even reminds us of that. In verse 34, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. 
The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born, love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Did you see that? You guys used to be foreigners yourselves, and you were mistreated for it. So how deeply ironic and arrogant would it be then if you, now that you're free, and by nothing that you've done, by no power of your own, were to mistreat a foreigner? You see how hypocritical that is? A native-born Egyptian mistreats you for being a foreigner, and you endure that abuse. Yet when you're free and the tables are turned, you do the very same thing. Kurt Mahler is um, one of the early leaders of the Antioch movement, and he spent some time in Waltham years ago now. And he was a writer, and he wrote something in an email once that I'll never forget. He said, unless the lamb learns to forgive, when it gets the advantage, he becomes the wolf. Unless the lamb learns to forgive, when he gets the advantage, he becomes the wolf. It's the same principle at work here. See, the Israelites, they received grace and favor and continue to receive grace and favor from God. And yet it's made clear to them that it wasn't because of their merit. It's by God's grace. It's by his love. It's his commitment to his people. The only logical way to respond to that is to love others in the same way that God loved them. I mean, failing to do so would indicate that they never really received that love in the first place. Because that kind of love, that kind of undeserved favor changes you when you receive it. Don't miss that point because that's the power of this command. We can love others well, even those who are unlovable, because we have been loved well, even though we are often unlovable. As Christians, we've received this supreme love while we were sinners, unlovely, worthy of punishment and being condemned. God loved us by giving his son. He died so we could live. He freed us, not because of what we'd done, but because of what his son did. He loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He's that kind of God. And so as we receive that great truth, the heart of the gospel... We're free to love others the same way. And that love requires the constant reminder in your heart of who you are. You're a freed slave. You're rescued by God's grace. And you can't give what you haven't received. So as you receive the love of God in Christ, you can give that back to those around you and love your neighbors as yourselves. And in it, God is honored. He's glorified because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. If you look at yourself, look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, you can't help but love others. Sinners, unlovable people, just like you, who need a Savior just as badly as you do. Broken people, just like you, who are saved from sin exactly the same way you are. I heard a prayer once that that summarized it really well. It said, God, help me to forgive others who sin differently than I do. Amen?
God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. And we can love others because God first loved us. And as I I wrote this message, right, and I was thinking about how to conclude it, and I wanted to find some great quote or illustration or list of things to do or think about, and so I'm on the internet, and I'm, I'm, oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he must have something good to say about community. So I, like, open up life together, and I'm flipping through it and trying to find something, and I just choked. I had nothing. And as I thought about it, I realized that it's just, it's silly. I mean, it's silly to think that we can love others as we love ourselves and love others the same way God loves us. I could crush you with things to do, right? But we just can't, we can't love the way God loves us by trying harder or thinking more clearly or hearing some powerful illustration. It might help, but we'll fail. I can't, I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do it. We can't change our hearts in that way for that kind of selflessness, that kind of love. My preaching cannot do that this morning. The one thing, the only thing, and I really mean the only thing that can change our hearts to live out this great command is the gospel of Christ. It's only God's grace. It's only the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are unlovable, sinful people bearing real moral guilt before a holy God, and that God, the author of life itself, loves us so dearly, so beyond the highest possible human expression that we've ever thought of, that he gave himself for us to die the death we should have died and rise again so we could be with him forever. And until that truth rocks you to the core of who you are, and you are born again by placing your faith in Jesus and made a child of God, and that's activated in, y- in your life, that command is going to elude you. You're never going to be able to do it. And even if you've received that, the only way you're going to live it out is by constantly be, just being saturated with the gospel in your life. Every moment remembering that. Getting hold. Can you imagine for a sec what would happen if I just got a tenth of God's love for me? What would happen to us? What would happen to this community if just the smallest fraction of how deeply and profoundly God loved us and gave for us, if that got activated in your heart, just a bit of it, the world would change. The whole community, economy, and look at Acts. Whole economies were upended. Everything changed. Everything was different because these people loved each other that kind of way. They loved others. They loved their neighbors that kind of way. What would happen to this church? It'd be absolutely out of control. It'd be the kind of thing we pray for all the time to get hold of how deeply God loves us. And you can see that through the gospel of Christ. So carry that in your hearts. 
You will love others when you realize that God loves you. So let's pray. Band, you can come on up. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, for the great truth of how deeply you love us. Uh, Even though we are often unlovable. And I thank you, God, that you have given us the power, you've created us to reflect and to to point to that kind of love in, in how we live and to bring you glory through a loving community by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, we are broken, sinful people and we desperately need your help. So Holy Spirit, I just pray you would help us this morning to just get in touch, to just get in touch with that, to to experience it, uh, to get a deep, deep sense within our hearts and a visceral level, Lord God, how you love us so that can overflow and spread out and everyone with, we, we come into contact with, Lord God, would be touched by your love through us, a selfless love that gives for others for their good and that you would be glorified in all this, Lord God. It is your initiative, it is your plan, it is your power. And so we pray that we could receive that this morning, that we would not leave unchanged by your Spirit's work in our hearts. We love you and we thank you for this time to respond and worship. In Jesus' name.